This is the Cinema for All podcast. The celebration of going to the cinema with Jack Chell and Abby Standish. Welcome to the Cinema for All podcast. It's Jack and Abby back again with another episode for season two. If you are new to us, hello and welcome. We are from the Cinema for All team, which is a national charity based in Sheffield in the north of England. We help people all over the UK set up their own cinema screenings in their community, wherever they are. Our podcast is a celebration of going to the cinema. The people who create cinema, the experiences, the people behind the scenes, the whole thing. We love going to the cinema. We love going to the cinema. <laughs> Last season, we talked to directors, programmers, volunteers, putting our own on their own film screenings. But this season, we're really delving into what makes the cinema such a special place. So we're going to be looking behind the scenes, sneak peeks at different things to do with film, hearing a lot about cinema memories and much, much more. Now, if all our talk about cinema gets you excited about doing your own film screenings, get in touch. Go to cinemaforall.org.uk to find out how you can set up your own film screenings in your community. We will help you! So the first episode of this season was Danny Lee, our patron, and he was in the Abbeydale Picture House, which is an amazing building in Sheffield, a beautiful old Art Deco cinema. But what have we got in store for people today, Abby? We have a very special interview for you today with Barry Purvis, who is an extraordinary animator, puppeteer, theatre director, film director, everything. Wow. He is such an interesting guy. He sounds amazing. I can't wait to listen to this segment. Yes. And he had an amazing cat called Marcus, which you'll hear all about. Yeah, the cat is the main thing I want to hear about. Yeah. <laughs> I actually don't care about animation. I only care about pets. <laughs> <laughs> but first, what is going on in the world of film, Abby? You go to the cinema more than me. What have you seen lately? I've seen a couple of things lately that were really, really good. Um, the first one was Pain and Glory. Oh, great. The new Almodovar film. Mm -hmm. So, so good. I, everything you expect from him, glorious Spanish colours, excellent melodrama, lovely performances, stories that'll stick with you. Um, I just loved it. I just really, really... It, it's kind of semi about him. Oh. And Antonio Banderas is playing a version of Pedro Madavar, a film director in his later years. Um, and Banderas absolutely knocked it out of the park. I just loved um, the voluptuousness of his film in a cinema. And I'm, I'm just so happy that he keeps releasing films. That's so exciting because he's, he's had a bit of a bad run of it lately. His last couple of films have not been great. I've not enjoyed one since Volver, which is maybe 2007. Really? Yeah. I really liked... Um, Broken Embraces, I really liked yeah. um, Julieta. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was really good. And that was another adaptation one, but really, really cool. Nice one. What else have you seen? Uh, last night I went to see Fleabag, the NTL, oh, the National Theatre Live. Oh, so you scored tickets because I did not. Yeah, I, I managed to get tickets. Um, I'm so This makes me think how thankful I am about that cinemas do, do these live screenings mm. because... It would have cost like ninety pounds at the theatre to yeah. go and see it, like where it was. Um, but it was um, eighteen pounds here, and <laughs> I don't know if that's interesting. But I found that kind of interesting that yeah. you can, because you know, for the trains to London, and everything else on top of that, it would have been a lot of money and probably completely and utterly sold out as well. Yeah, exa little chance exactly. Of tickets there. Precisely. So it was really good to see it. I love the show, and it was interesting to see her just really hold her own in a one-woman show. Mm. Um, yeah, really, really good. Oh, fantastic! Uh, what have you been to see? Um, so I went to see something a bit trashy on Wednesday. I went to see It Part Two. Ooh, it, Shiver Me Timbers. 
It's not as scary as the first one. It's um, I really enjoy the different cast. The casting's actually incredible because the adults really, really look like their kid counterparts. Oh, cool. Um, especially the kid that the the grown up that plays Eddie looks exactly like the kid. It's it's really bonkers. It's kind of distracting. No <laughs> way. You're like, how did they do this? Where did they find these people? Did the one that plays the 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 girl? I mean, you could have chosen Amy Adams. You could have chosen. Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah, yeah. Who did they go with? So it's Jessica Chastain. Uh, yeah, yeah. So what happened is the kids, when they made the first movie, they were being interviewed and people were saying like, who do you want to play you in the in the adult version, the second second part? And she said Jessica Chast- Chastain. Oh, wow. And Phil, Finn Wolfhard, who plays uh, Richie, he said Bill Hader and they <gasps> cast Bill Hader as well. So like, that's awesome. That's some powerful kid. Yeah. <laughs> that's like a powerful teenager that gets to be like casting people in sequels. Amazing. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, I like the book It. I like Stephen King. I think the miniseries is um, very, very scary. It's kind of stupid and flabby as well, but it's but it's great. It's a proper bit of 80s mm. nostalgia. But yeah, it was very enjoyable. Very long film, nearly three hours long, but didn't feel it. It was really entertaining all the way through. Oh, cool. Yeah. And also, I've been um, a bit more highbrow. I've been catching up on the Nick Rogue season at the showroom. So I watched Man Man Who Fell to Earth a couple of weeks ago and most recently Eureka, which is not a Nick Rogue film I'd heard of before, so certainly not watched. And it stars Gene Hackman um, playing a guy who made it big in the gold rush basically in Canada and then he moves to the Bahamas he kind of got a private island of the Bahamas and it's set um, during World War Two, and I don't want to give too much away but it's based on a real story something very very dramatic happens to him um, it's also got Rutger Hauer in the first half of the film is utterly amazing really beautiful and then it kind of just falls apart a little bit mm. it gets a bit boring and a bit standard and almost kind of TV movie but the rest of the film was so good that it was it was absolutely worth it so I'd recommend if, if people are getting Nick Rogue seasons near them definitely check that one out it was great oh it's really cool they've been doing a retrospective for him yeah yeah awesome I also went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, I've not caught it yet. I don't know what I'm delaying for. I know, for. this speaks to you. I know. I oh, Well, I love stuff about Charles Manson and that era of Hollywood, but I do not love Quentin Tarantino. No, no. I Obviously, you know, when, you, when you're 15 and you get into films, maybe, sure. Quentin Tarantino feels amazing. Yeah. But then you realise, oh, he kind of borrows from a lot of other filmmakers that have been going a long time. Um, it was, I think it's one of his better films. Mm. I still don't know. I know that it was good, but I don't know like why I'd give it out of 10 or anything like that. Wow. But it made me think, I was thinking about it a lot. Um, I think it's one of his more tender films, surprisingly. Oh, wow. Um, I wouldn't have expected somebody to say tender in the same sentence as Tarantino. I know, know, only like specific parts. I don't really want to give anything away. Um, But Leo absolutely acts his socks off in it and is very believable as this character um, who's seen as a bit of a kind of acting pudding, essentially. Uh, I think. I think. Wait, the, what's an acting pudding? Just like a bit of a pudding, you know. He's like a nice <laughs> guy, but you know, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think people think he was good at like just being a villain in westerns, right? And then you, there's this um, great scene where he's just in a trailer. It's no spoiler, um, and he's just kind of talking himself up and wanting to get himself to get the best acting he can out of himself and mm. it's quite compelling and then you realize you know how seriously his character takes his work and mm. what he wants to get from it 
Um, and that was just a really, really good scene. Nice. Um, there are a few things I'm a bit like, mm, about it. Mm. But on the whole, it got me talking and thinking about it um, with people that have seen it. Um, so, yeah, I think, it, I think it was pretty good. Mm. The guy that played Charles Manson in it also played Charles Manson in Mindhunter of the TV series. Oh, no on way. Netflix. Yeah, yeah, they cast the same guy. Like, their casting is unbelievable, actually. Yeah. They really match up to, you know, the serial killers that they're portraying. But, Scary. yeah, I thought it was quite cool that this guy's now got, like, a little side a side business in Charles Manson impressions. I know. Wow. <laughs> what what two little credits to, to yeah. have. Yeah. Definitely have an impact. Um, and at home, I watched "Can You Ever Forgive Me." Oh yeah, yeah. I I I enjoyed it. It was nice. Oh, with Reg, with the yeah, good Richard old e. Grant. R- yeah, Richard yeah. E. Graham, who was just you could just tell he's just loving being in that film, yeah. and he's really good in it. And Melissa McCarthy again, just the subtleties of her acting, so so good. Um, I enjoyed it. Not anything like I'd shout about, but mm. I definitely put it again, put it on again in the background as like I was drawing or something. Ooh. Nice, uh, nice production. Nice uh, art direction in it. I was recently in close proximity to Richard E. Grant, actually, no now way. that you mention him. Why? Um, well, they're currently filming the musical, the movie version of Everybody's Talking About Jamie here in Sheffield. Yes. And members of the public were invited to take part in a street party scene, um, which I won't give anything else away about it because I want everybody to go and see it. And it's going to be very, very exciting when the movie comes out in October. Um, but yes, Mr. E. Grant was there on set, very, very close to us. We were all trying to be very casual. <laughs> <laughs> too excited but it was really exciting Aww. so yeah he was there and there were a couple of other stars that are perhaps more TV stars so Sarah Lancashire love Sharon Sarah Horgan. Lancashire love um, Sharon Horgan was there yeah Sharon Horgan's there great she plays Miss Hedge for any everybody's talking about Jamie fans out there um, and also the guy that plays Jamie so well cast it was such an exciting day actually so I'm very very excited for when that film comes out I hope everybody gets to see it yeah I'm really looking forward to that one Right then, Abby, shall we get into this segment? Yes, please. So this is you and our colleague Ellie, and you are interviewing legendary animator Barry Purvis. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. So, Abby, you like animation, don't you? Love animation. Yeah. And you love it as well. You make it. Well, I did I did do some animations back in my day. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. I love it. I love how everything's crafted and especially kind of the stop motion animation I think that stuff's amazing yeah um and have you ever thought about the people that maybe work behind the scenes on actually making those films so the animators themselves I am intrigued but I don't know a lot about them I think I definitely take my hat off to them for the painstaking work that they do yeah I mean I've I've made a few short animation films myself and um I was inspired to do that by um, an amazing animation tutor that I had at university called Barry Purvis, um, who we've had a bit of a chat with, haven't we? We have, and we got to learn a lot more about the behind the scenes and what goes into the life of an animator. Yeah. Barry's house, I have to say, it was so breathtaking. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? So beautiful. You'd, it's the house that you would expect from an animator. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's full of so much history. And just as a building, the building itself is amazing. But to be a kind of a multi-story flat within that building is so different. So different. And he had that kind of... Um, military filing cabinet with deep, full of DVDs yep. and little puppets everywhere and masks and yeah. posters. 
it, and it kind of winds up and up and up. Yeah, so there's, cool. a, there's a kind of a big winding staircase that leads up to a turret on the top of his house, doesn't yeah. it? And and it's a, a balcony that he uses to host parties. It's a nice little den for his cat to play on. Oh, Marcus. When we got there, we met. He, he kind of shouted, Marcus, Marcus. <laughs> and uh, a cat emerged from the woods surrounding the house. And it's the biggest cat. I've ever seen. He was very, very fluffy. Very black and white and fluffy and just so cute. And Barry is um, equally as fluffy and sweet. He's got a lovely big beard and a soft voice and just a wonderful man to listen to. Yeah. After an amazing career spanning of 41 years, we had to ask Barry what draws him to animation. I think it's um, the artifice of it. Yeah. I love the artifice that tells the truth. I love the lie that tells the truth. And I love theatre because it's so artificial and then ballet so artificial, opera so artificial, and yet you come away in tears or excited or whatever. And you think, why is that? Why? Because it's artificial, you know. I do a lot of theatre locally and there's a play coming up and they're doing it in a realistic set of a living room and I thought, oh no, just reinvent it. Use metaphors, use colours, um, and I think that's what I love. I, I love that a bit of red can have the power of a sledgehammer. It's the transformation that art can do. Um, you know it's fake. And most theatres today don't have tabs, don't have curtains anymore, um, because it's about sharing the trick. You know, in, in Victorian times, you've got these grand illusions that were very realistic and you know, the curtain went up and there it was all with real bunnies on stage in Midsummer Night's Dream and stuff. <laughs> but now, you know, things like Warhorse uh, puppet can reduce you to tears. Mm. So I think it's the artifice of animation that I like. I wanted to be an actor. Um, I still do a bit. Um, but it's the performance and I, I think what performance is, is presentation and it's, it is, it is an act, it is an act, mm. but out of that act comes something truthful. So a little bit about Barry's past. So obviously he worked at Cosgrove Hall, which was the um, big animation studio, which was based in Greater Manchester and it was amazing to have you know an, an animation studio based in the north of England I think that was very rare for the time and they produced such TV shows as Shorten and the Wheelies, Danger Mouse obviously and Wind in the Willows which Barry worked on during its entirety and, and kind of animated the characters of uh, Mr Toad and Ratty and Barry's also since then um, he worked on a lot of short films including a, one called Next which was based on on the plays of Shakespeare and in I think nine minutes he retells um, every single one of Shakespeare's plays. Amazing. Um, and he's also made other films such as Plume um, which is a beautiful animation about um, it, it combines like dance it's it's all silent and it's just absolutely stunning to watch it's really visually um, yeah arresting and 
also Tchaikovsky, which I helped him on a little bit after I finished university. And um, Tchaikovsky was filmed in his dining room and featured just one puppet that was Tchaikovsky and it was kind of a retelling of his life through his music. I would say that although you can tell in your films that you are clearly incredibly inspired by theatre and performance, there's there's definitely such depth and rich in them that it's so cinematic. Where does that cinematic angle come well, from, do you think? Maybe animation is the love child of cinema and theatre. Yes, my films are theatrical, and that sort of started with a lack of a budget. Because <laughs> uh, when I made Next, I had envisaged pyramids and Roman temples mm-hmm. and Greek woods and everything, and the budget prohibited that. So I thought, well, do you need it? Mm. Can he come on with a branch, and that represents a wood? I thought, well, that's what Shakespeare would have done anyway. I do like using film tricks as well. I like looking as though there were several cameras at the same time, which there aren't, because mm-hmm. we can't afford them. So I like finding the right moment to cut on an action and using film tricks. So, yeah, well, I think you're right. I like to use both theatre tricks and film tricks mm. um, to make something new, mm. something different. There are no films like mine, I have to say, (laughs) whether that's a good thing or not. Um, And we had this retrospective in Mexico last week. We did, Marcus. (laughs) To the listeners, we have a cat. Such a lovely big cat. Who's eating my, looking at my custard pie. Um, And we showed some films and um, at the end, of Tchaikovsky, I could hear this noise in the audience and two women were in tears. And I don't know what it is about that film. I try to work with emotions that are not usually associated with animation and there's something about Tchaikovsky that moves people. I think, you know, the trend these days is to have a hundred faces for a puppet with stretching and squashing and stuff. Tchaikovsky only had moving eyes and that artifice didn't stop the emotion. And I love how that happens. I love how wearing a mask can be so emotional, but it can also be very revealing. Masks, you have this idea, put on a mask and you're hiding. No, you're suddenly Mm -hmm. saying, look, here I am. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Marcus. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, my favourite quote, Oscar Wilde. Man is seldom himself when he speaks in his own voice. Give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth. Give a man animation, he'll tell you the truth. Give a man a puppet, tell the truth. And all my talks at the moment are literally about that, about the artifice, being aware of the artifice and how it tells the truth. But also I think what works in the film is every frame counts for and every frame has been considered. Um, the colours are there for a reason, the cut is there for a reason, the music's there for a reason. My favourite director is Hitchcock, which is, he considered everything. Mm. Um, even if he didn't tell the actors or the cameraman, he considered every cut, every framing. Um, 
And I think that's what we have to do really is, is animation when it costs so much and you have to create everything from scratch. You have to make it contribute. Yeah. There's something very animating about his films, despite them being mm. very, very slick and but real looking. But They're very conscious mm-hmm. of being a film. Yeah, precisely. But that doesn't get in the way. Mm-hmm. If I go back to my beloved War Horse again, um, there is a piece in the second act where a horse has just died. He's staggered on and he's been poisoned by mustard gas poisoning and he's limping and you can see the puppeteers limping him and breathing him and our hero finds him and stabs him in the ear, stabs a bamboo puppet in the ear and, you know, 2,000 people gasp and cry and everything. And then, you know, this is a story about the horrors of World War One, brutally done on an empty stage. And then you see this horse dying and breathing its last and the operators put down their sticks and get up and bow to the puppet and walk back into the shadows. How many fourth walls can be smashed, you know? But it doesn't matter. It's because it says, we're telling a story to you and you're part of it. You're sharing that moment. Whereas I, I do worry about CG sometimes, that they've taken the awareness of the technique away. Mm. Um, and you just sit there and you don't put anything in. It just happens. I really do believe art only works when you know it's art. Mm. CG does cross the rules. And it puts cameras where cameras can't go and it it does things that break the laws of physics. And then we sort of get a bit, really? I think we need to know the laws of physics in anything. And we flirt with crossing them like a roller coaster. We're going to die. No, it's safe. We've just seen somebody else go on it. It's safe. But <laughs> we're flirting with it. Um, it's like with the... One of the first movies of the of the train and yes. coming forward, yeah. Yeah. no one had seen a shot um, dead on like that, and the audience moved out yes. out of the way. Even though it was black and white, yeah. and the f- scale may have yeah. been something different, the uh, the impression of a train coming towards them was what was important. Mm. I'd love to know what the first reaction to a cut was. Mm-hmm. Um, because cut, cutting is something so unnatural because yeah. we can't do it. Mm, yeah. We can't suddenly zoom into a close-up or anything. But we've learnt that language. Mm. So well, it's that cheap. kind of magical moment, isn't it? And I think that's something that really drew me to, to animation and drew me to, to your lectures, basically, at, at university. Was I, I felt like animation was a form of magic. It, it, it is. It, like, baffles the and, mind. But what's the trick about magic? Is you know it's not. Yeah. <laughs> you know they're not cutting a woman in half. Yeah. But... But you can't explain it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about yeah. those kind of gasp moments, mm. and ones you've created or ones you've seen. Can you think of any in films you've seen over the years where you've gone, you've just marvelled at how it looks, yes. how it's made you feel. Yes, I can. 
Mary and Max. Yes! Mm. I love that film so much! <laughs> that is my favourite film, and Adam is, is a great friend of mine. Um, it's not the most beautiful film. The puppets are quite basic. You know they're plasticine. The main characters never meet. Mm-hmm. You know, which, if it's a love story of sorts, you should get them to meet, but they never meet. And he's very conscious about the colours and use of red. But Mary goes to meet him in New York and he's died. Mm. And they just use a piece of Puccini and she looks round and looks at all her letters that she wrote stuck on the wall. I can't get through that scene. Mm. It's so powerful. And you think, no, they're just six-inch plasticine figures loosely sculpted, loosely animated, there's, you know, not much finesse, and all the better for that, Mm. all the better for that. Mm. And I think that is really one of the most powerful scenes in all, in all film. No dialogue, just a solo character looking, looking at letters and their history. And it's a metaphor and the use of where does this Madam Butterfly music come from? It just is there. And um, I think this is a superb moment in a superb film. Animation is a device. Um, remember Monkey Bone? No. That was the third Henry Selleck film after James uh, and the Giant Peach. Oh, and, I don't remember that one, no. And it's about a writer and he's having a hard time with relationships and work and everything. And suddenly his his creation comes to life as a stop motion puppet, and he's a wild boy, and he's he's you know he's like Ted, you know the like the film Ted, or he's like um, Mrs Doubtfire, you know, mm. just says what they want. But again, it's Mrs Doubtfire is the honest one, not Robin Williams. Mm. You know, it takes that. Stepping into artifice to be the truth. Or Tootsie, Mm. you know, Tootsie, he has to become a a woman to understand how men should treat women and, you know, all this. Again, Shakespeare's full of it, Mm. as you like it. You've got a boy actor playing a girl who goes into the woods dressed as a boy and says (laughs) to her lover, if I was a girl, how would you woo me? <laughs> why didn't we just say, why don't we just come out with it? We can't come out with it. We have to talk through. Yeah. We have to talk through Marcus or whatever. <laughs> Marcus, look, these girls, are they, they, what are they like? Barry often makes films about real people. I wanted to know if using puppets and animation helped give him licence to tell those stories. I think that's the exact word. It gives you licence to not be naturalistic um, and you can play you know the Tchaikovsky film there's the device of the gold frame which is saying it's not real which means I can use a photograph of his lover because I can't afford to build a puppet you know mm-hmm. and uh, and it's artificial so I don't need a real piano I had hoped to have a real piano but I couldn't afford it and I thought well actually I don't need a real piano um, and people love the fact that he's playing an air piano and then it becomes Swan Lake or becomes mm. whatever. 
Um, so it's all in his head. They're all internal. Um, but yeah, the artifice of animation, you can say anything. But I think you still have to keep those physics. Yeah. I remember when I was doing Next, and I had this beautiful puppet, and it occurred to me one of the characters gets decapitated, Macbeth or something. I thought, I'm going to take his head. Oh, no, it's for Yorick's skull in Hamlet. I was going to take his own head off, and I thought, no, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that because I've destroyed the convention that I've set up. Mm-hmm. If I'd done it straight away at the beginning and he took his head off and took his hand off or whatever, so the audience were comfortable, but I can't halfway through a film suddenly take his own head off. <laughs> oh, yes, you can, Barrett. It's animation. No. It's too expensive. Well, <laughs> not just that. It's just you have to set up conventions and mm. stay with the, the language of how you're telling the story. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I got Tchaikovsky to jump and stay in the air for four seconds, well, you wouldn't believe him anymore because mm. anything can happen. But he's uh, normally he's obeying the physics. And if you break those physics then you've broken something. So you have to find the language to tell your story. Mm. Because it's pretty is not enough. Mm. But I like it. It's not enough if it, <laughs> if it doesn't contribute to the film. Lose it. We wanted to see Barry's amazing puppets from his short films, but he informed us that they're on their travels. Some are in exhibitions, and others are in other people's houses. The puppet from Tchaikovsky sits on Tchaikovsky's original piano in his own home. Barry was invited to go to a concert attached to Tchaikovsky's home, and he tells us this amazing story. There's a concert hall attached to his house now, and um, it was a cadet band, and the first half was... They played Glinka, who's a rather jolly Russian. And um, in the second half, I met the conductor who was in uniform. I had this huge handlebar moustache. <laughs> um, and then um, the second half was all Tchaikovsky, and they played Waltz of the Flowers to begin with. Then they stopped, and I thought, turned around and said, we'd like to dedicate it to a friend of ours and a friend of Tchaikovsky's. All right. And I thought... I've never seen a grown man cry quite so quickly. That's lovely. And I thought, that's better than an Oscar. Yeah. Yeah. Film is so painstaking, particularly with animation. I think why I like theatre, I like the adrenaline of you have to start at 7.30. Yeah. And you can't get it wrong. And I think there is an echo in my films of long sustained shots Mm -hmm. which is the same thing you know screenplay has a nine and a half minute take without a cut which took us three months two and a half months and i thought once i press frame one i can't start again Mm. cg today you can start again um but it was exciting thinking i've got to be on my toes i've got to get it right Mm. So there are, and even next, there are sort of 50 second shots and things that are so complicated. And I, you you think, have you done your homework? Do you know what's going to happen? And I like that. I like the adrenaline from stop motion because you, 
can't do it again, really. Mm, yeah. You know, once you've moved a puppet, in effect, that's that image gone. With, you know, digital playback, you can faff around and maybe move it back and... Or you've got onion skin, you see, is that move too big? Or that too big? Oh, heaven's sake, just do it! <laughs> Your hand is the best recording device ever. Mm-hmm. It really is. What really struck me about Barry, and quite emotionally as well, was what a kind, hard-working and incredibly talented man he is. And how he doesn't seem to know his own worth around with the people around him or in the animation community. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's really... I mean, it's really baffling because he is an, a living legend. You know, his his films, as he, as he describes, aren't like anything else out there, um, which is quite a feat to be able to say that. I think, and his you know his tireless work in the animation department is is incredibly revered by so many people. If you Google his name, you see nothing but praise for all of his films, and they've gone on to inspire some absolutely incredible animations. Um, yeah, I think I think he really needs to somehow feel that love because, you know, people are giving him lifetime achievement awards not to say, you know, you're done. They're to say we absolutely adore you. So obviously Barry's done a lot of work locally and um, really made a name for himself in the UK but he's always dreamed of working abroad as well and kind of breaking into feature films um, of Hollywood and he um, was able to do this with Mars Attacks and King Kong. Those two features were odd experiences and they were odd for me because they were both at times when Technology was changing. Mm. Mars Attacks was meant to be a stop-motion homage to Ray Harryhausen and things. And we went out there with and set up a studio and made all these Martians. There wasn't a final script. So when we got the puppets, we started animating and just sort of do that and do this, see how he would walk and everything. Um, in the meantime, the producer, one producer left and another producer came on board who'd just done Jumanji and basically showed Tim the CG that it could give him more options and he could have several hundred Martians. Mm. And it became a financial thing, really. Something was lost and something was gained, so mm. it lost the homage to Ray Harryhausen and but the sheer spectacle of dozens of Martians. One of the difficulties we had, which maybe swayed it towards CG, was the helmets. Yeah. We had to unscrew the helmet, move the puppet, and put the helmet back on, making sure that we didn't move the puppet as we put the helmet back on. And then we think, oh look, there are fingerprints. So we had to clean all the fingerprints. Mm-hmm. Oh no, there's one inside. Uh, I had to take it off again. Oh, what was that sound? Oh God, somebody's just dropped one. A helmet was in CG. It's easy to do a CG helmet and get reflections and things. Um, I don't know what would have happened, but history was changing. So, mm. And then I got taken to Kong. And again, history was changing. Andy Serkis had just done Gollum. And again, there was no definite script, which 
surprised me both times. Mm. Um, and it, again, it was here's a CG wireframe of Kong and Anne and T Rexes go away and play and see how they would walk and everything. In the meantime, we'll think how we're going to do Kong. And eventually it was Andy Serkis. So he sort of got my job. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and that I think that's probably the way I... It was never going to be a stop-motion Kong. Mm. Interesting enough, it was about... Eight years earlier, I think there was talk of doing a stop-motion con. Um, but uh, anyway, CG has taken over, motion capture has taken over. Mm. It's uh, interesting how the, we've took those stories and we've read, like Kong, for example, because that was stop-motion at first. Yeah. And how, yeah, the stop-motion ones were still drawn to them. That doesn't matter when something handmade or stop motion was made, they kind of catch your attention. Mm. So right from like German expressionist films yes. and those kind of very theatrical sets that they make, if we watch that now, we are totally stunned by them. So maybe in a way, the CGI, it's like a, you know, it's like a nice cake. We're going to get sick of it. So when something fresh, as old as it is, comes along yes. and we see something yeah. handmade, well, why do you think that still I'm, strikes with us? When I arrived in New Zealand, people were still busy with Lord of the Rings. But Peter Jackson said to me he'd never actually seen King Kong on the big screen. He'd only seen it on video. Um, so we did a bit of homework. I can't remember if it was me or somebody. And found there was actually a film print of Kong in Australia. And a lot of the people doing the CGI for Lord of the Rings had never seen Kong. And Peter is a collector. I think he's got an original armature of Kong. He certainly has some props. Mm. And he stood up before and said he was so excited to see this film on the big screen. And everybody was, you know, it's King Kong, laughing at a 1933 film. And he held up a prop which was one of the gas bombs that are used in the film. And everybody went, oh my God, there's a connection. The film started and, you know, you have pictures of New York with a little model boat going across and everybody was laughing and everything. And everybody was laughing at the film. And then Kong appears and you heard people going, gosh, that's beautiful. You know, the marriage of the live action mm. in the sort of painterly black and white looking like engravings. Mm. And it just got a huge round of applause at the end. That's amazing. And especially when the bomb came on, the gas bomb came on that Peter was holding. And it won them over. It won them absolutely mm. over for that reason. For the sheer craft, the imagination, and the storytelling. It was such a pleasure to spend a couple of hours with a man that spent 40 years working on animations and theatre and just bringing such beautiful stories to us so humbly. And Barry says that it's the transformation that art can do that keeps him passionate about animation and what he does. And I couldn't agree more. Barry says that animation and art is a mask for us to tell our truth. And the podcast is our mask 
moment for us to tell our truth, which is, Barry, we think you're amazing and you deserve every accolade and celebration that you get. Um, so keep doing what you're doing, Barry. Abby, that was great. And you know what? I didn't just love the cat stuff. I also <laughs> loved what he was talking about with the artifice. I know. He, he's just got such intelligent kind of readings and explanations about why we do things in, in art and in different ways. Mm. Um, I particularly love the King Kong screening story as well. Oh. Um, just really cool to hear what people, an, animators and filmmakers thought of that film at the begin, to begin with and what they thought at the end. Yeah, what a privilege to meet people like that with just such incredibly... St- rich careers and incredible stories and it's so important that we record those and grab those stories from people definitely definitely so thank you Barry yeah thank you Barry right if you like the Cinema for All podcast please rate and review us on iTunes share us on social media where you can find us at Cinema for All pod or even just let your friends know about it it goes such a long way please tell people please tell people <laughs> but for now it's time to roll credits producer Jay Platts logo designed by Lydia Lipinski at Thoughts Make Things hosted by Jack Chell and Abby Standish with thanks to Barry Purvis Ellie Ragdale Deborah Parker and Sheffield Live the Cinema for All podcast is supported by the BFI awarding funds from the National Lottery thank you